Hello. I wonder how you're watching this lecture. On a laptop? Or perhaps on a smaller or a larger screen? Maybe even casting it to a television like the one facing me? What's certain, however, is that you're watching it on a screen and streamed. Probably in a very similar situation to where I'm recording it. We may think this is something new that's been made possible by our current digital technologies. And it's true that the quality has greatly improved. Yet, however convenient, for many people it feels inferior to the real thing, whether that's a live performance of some kind or a proper film show, perhaps in a cinema. But in this lecture, I want to question such assumptions. We could start by looking back to the era before cinema emerged, when the possibility of communicating over long distance in sound and vision seemed almost too good to be true, but distinctly likely. There was a wonderful cartoon in Punch in 1879 showing, as a prediction for the following year, the telephonoscope, which shows a Victorian father and mother communicating live with their daughter in distant Sri Lanka, then known as Ceylon. What made this topical was the launch of the International Bell Telephone Company in that same year even though the first international phone calls were still several years ago. But a few years later, the French artist Albert Robida, in his book The Twentieth Century, would show another image of the telephonoscope, incorporating Edison's recent invention, the phonograph. Home theatre networks started in Hungary and spread to Paris, where Marcel Proust was a, an enthusiastic user, and to other European capitals, you could visit the theatre by telephone. Perhaps the most comprehensive vision of the audiovisual future appeared in H.G. Wells' novel The Sleeper Awakes in 1899, where his sleeping 19th century hero wakens 200 years later to discover a world in which there are small portable devices that can show you moving images and bedside consoles which contain a library of drama and opera. I've explored this in, in more detail in my research on Robert Paul and his relationship with H.G. Wells. Most of these had to wait for the electronic age. What emerged in the interim was a network of cinema theatres, cinemas to us, modelled on the existing dramatic or variety theatre, concentrating audiences in front of a screen. Some, of course, felt that this was a poor substitute for live performance. But for millions, it proved a highly attractive alternative. And during the first 30 or so years of the 20th century, it became a majority entertainment. But it's often forgotten that even during this period, the lure of home entertainment never disappeared. The film had always been seen domestically in a variety of systems. And soon there would be radio, television broadcasting, to realise that 1890s dream. By 1950, television networks were growing as an alternative to theatre-based systems, and they soon eclipsed them, providing an alternative mode of consumption for the majority. How was the rise of television seen as an alternative to cinema? Well, of course, there's no single answer. For some, especially in the industry, it was a challenge to be resisted at all costs. For others, it marked the beginning of the death of cinema. But for many, it was the start of an exciting new era, 
a long-delayed promise. And some of these enthusiasts were very much a part of cinema. For instance, Hitchcock launched a weekly television series in 1955 and ran it for seven years, Alfred Hitchcock Presents. His near-contemporary, Michael Powell, also hoped in the early 50s that television might offer him a chance to make varied tales running for different lengths, although he was unsuccessful in this at the time. And before these, the veteran director, Cecil B. DeMille, hosted a weekly radio show that featured condensed versions of current films. I think these and, and many others who saw the advantages of home viewing and listening need to be remembered when we think about relations between the media. But how was cinema seen in the mid-20th century? People of my generation will have their own memories, and there's a classic account of the appeal of cinema going by the French theorist of semiology and critic Roland Barthes, published in 1975. Barthes evokes the anonymous, populated darkness of the cinema as the main source of any film's fascination. And he contrasts this with the lack of fascination to be found in watching films on television, with, quote, darkness erased and anonymity repressed. For Barthes, like many French intellectuals of his generation, there was a lack of what he calls the eroticization of the darkened cinema auditorium. Not that he necessarily meant this literally, although it's undeniable that the anonymous darkness of the cinema did used to offer, shall we say, erotic opportunity. Television, he complains, doomed us to the family, which I suppose might be a reference to having shared his home with his mother throughout most of his life, but let's not go any further down that route. There's something quite strange and contradictory in Bath's attitude towards the cinema experience. He ends the essay by suggesting that it's possible to be doubly fascinated by the image and the surroundings, but also admitting that he enjoys leaving the cinema as much as entering it. I suspect that it was during the next decade that nostalgia for cinema really started to take hold among intelligentsias on both sides of the Atlantic. Its peak probably came in 1996, when Susan Sontag published her Decay of Cinema essay, claiming that the one-time art of the 20th century had become irreversibly decadent. What she was lamenting, if you read the essay carefully, was the end of a special relationship between her generation and the culture of movies. And I think there's no doubt that this was provoked by a conjunction between the, the centenary of cinema, which was widely celebrated around 1995, and what was by then the well-established new culture of films viewed on video. Plus maybe a dash of millenarian doom and gloom as the year 2000 approached. During the following decade, cinema would complete its technological revolution with the release of Avatar in digital 3D in 2009. Ironically, it was this new form of spectacle, not available domestically, that would actually draw audiences back to cinema going, albeit temporarily. In 2012, the BFI's Opening Our Eyes report showed that alternative ways of viewing film were vastly more popular than cinema attendance, which accounted for only 6% of viewings. Yet the idea that social cinema viewing is more real or authentic 
has persisted. We can compare, obviously, this with similar attitudes towards print and recorded music, with marked preferences often expressed for books on paper and vinyl discs, despite the statistical evidence of majorities opting for online reading and streamed music. So, are these cases of compensatory nostalgia, or of what psychologists might call cognitive dissonance, or just forms of hypocrisy? (laughs) Whichever, it's an undeniable fact, uh, reinforced by our current lockdown, that the bulk of all film is watched at home, increasingly via streaming, rather than through DVD or cassettes. And we have considerable choice at our disposal, and no shortage of advice on what we should watch. Quite apart from the lists of best or greatest films that I talked about in the last lecture, we also have new forms of recommendation, urging us to try more of the same, or to discover what has been hand-picked for us. These are the contrasting strategies of two highly influential streaming platforms, Netflix and Mubi. And I want to consider briefly if or how these may influence the canons of the future. The Netflix model, which now has over 200 million subscribers around the world, is based on a close analysis of audience taste used as the basis for its acquisitions and, increasingly, its own productions, created to satisfy aspects of that taste. Netflix, we're often reminded, is not a film studio or a television network. It's more accurately described as a technology or a data company, which has embraced the power of analysing audience taste in microscopic detail. In one account of its operations, It's been claimed that Netflix reverse-engineered Hollywood, referring to Hollywood's methods for analysing responses to its films in order to offer its distinctive, personalised menus of suggestion. Apparently, Netflix devised some 76,897 micro-genre and broke these down into their components and uses this to predict what the many segments of its audience might like. The result has obviously been enormously successful in capturing audience satisfaction, with a variety of dramatic series that ranges from The Crown to, for instance, Dipoissant, known in English as Call My Agent, a series set, perhaps improbably, in a French talent agency with subtitled dialogue in highly colloquial French. But Netflix has also reached into the more traditional realms of feature film production, backing such films as Alfonso Cuarón's Roma and Martin Scorsese's The Irishman. And here, the flexibility of a company ultimately committed to satisfying its home viewers has allowed these filmmakers to create at whatever length they wish two and a quarter hours in Cuaron's case, but three and a half in Scorsese's. The offer from Netflix is unlimited television programmes and films, and the range is indeed vast. But the mechanism that generates this range and recommends or proposes which segments of it may interest you or me is one that we're increasingly familiar with in other areas of our consumer lives. I have just bought X online, 
So, the algorithm suggests, I may be interested in why. Netflix is clearly aware of some canonic traditions, from its interest in backing films by, by famous filmmakers such as Scorsese and Cuaron, and even Michael Bay, and its courting of stars who have built up cultural capital through their long careers, such as Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin, appearing in the series Grace and Frankie. But it's also highly democratic, geared to innovation, experiment, and ultimately spectator or subscriber appeal. To get some perspective, let's compare this with another streaming service, Mubi, which launched in 2007 with the aim of delivering classic and arthouse cinema. Unlike Netflix, Mubi claims to offer discovery through its hand-picked approach to selection, which it would describe as curated. Taking its cue from such film festivals as Cannes, Berlin, Venice, Rotterdam, when new reputations have traditionally been created, Mubi offers a range that's as remarkable as Netflix, although certainly smaller, but one that's geared to broadening its audience's awareness and ultimately their taste. And in recent developments, it has added a notebook forum of writing about cinema, and there's a podcast on the horizon, and a range of avant-garde and short films in addition to features. Under current conditions, Mubi seems to be prospering, although, like Netflix, it's reluctant to share detailed information about its subscriber base and levels of take-up. And, of course, there are many other streaming platforms also. Disney Plus is expected to eat into the Netflix market share, while in the United States there's the Criterion Channel, developed from its parent company's established range of high-quality DVD and Blu-ray releases. Whatever happens to cinema attendance in the coming years, it seems unlikely that our reliance on streaming will substantially diminish. But will a new equilibrium emerge, with large-scale event shows and smaller club-like screenings, perhaps in ideal cinemas, catering for a discriminating minority, while streaming remains a part of everyday life, like broadcasting, for the vast majority? Perhaps... But what bearing, you may wonder, does this have on the future of canons? Traditionally, canons have identified the best, the most highly regarded and the most rewarding work. Today, in film, as in so many areas of cultural life, we have become consumers, subject to pressures that are familiar elsewhere. Pierre Bourdieu called his classic 1979 study in the sociology of taste, Distinction showing how having a sense of discrimination and appreciation of quality was used by different social groups to proclaim their distinction, or in sociological terms, to maintain their cultural hegemony. Knowing about films by the great directors was a part of the terrain that Bourdieu explored, and being in France, with its tradition of the cinéma d'auteur, his bourgeois subjects could indeed display their taste. Are such concepts still applicable in the world of Netflix or Mubi? Well, clearly I think they are. If I sign up to Mubi, I'm certainly proclaiming an interest in a wider and potentially more challenging range of films than if I stick with Netflix or Disney+. But, of course, I'm free to pick and choose across these and other platforms. 
whatever advice or prompting they might offer. And what will guide my choices? Will it be a search for more of the same or for something new and different? Or, more likely, will it be a combination of these, depending on mood, circumstance and social situation? The BFI study, Opening Our Eyes, which I mentioned earlier, is now nearly 10 years old, carried out before streaming became a dominant force in shaping our film consumption. But already it painted a complex picture of what motivates our choices and determines our taste. Looking at what's now available to home viewers, I think it may be time to make a distinction between at least two different kinds of canon, which I'll call the prescriptive and the prospective. The first would be about what canons have traditionally decided, what is core, fundamental, or, or simply greatest. The great directors such as Hitchcock, Orson Welles, or Eisenstein, or Kubrick, and a dozen or so others. The second kind of canon may well have been created by the new availability that started with home video in the 1980s. The ability to enlarge and deepen one's knowledge, which, for instance, the great French director François Truffaut recognised when he became an early champion of video, lending his support to a range that was called Les Films de ma vie, The Films of My Life, named after his own book of collected criticism. I think Truffaut was pointing towards the idea that films help to construct us. They become part of who we are, which of course will change in some ways, but not in others. Opening Our Eyes also explored this idea that films can and do help us define our characters, our personality, our values. This in turn goes back to the first major sociological study carried on in the United States by Herbert Blumer, and reported in his book Movies and Conduct in 1933. Bloomer recognised that film had a massive influence in shaping especially children's understanding of the world and of themselves. As a result, he wrote, many people, quote, carry a movie world in their heads. This kind of internalisation of film and how it shapes other aspects of our lives and behaviour is something rather different from sitting back deciding on the 10 or 20 or 100 greatest films, or in Mubi's case, voting for the top 1,000. It's more like how we interact with films in different ways at different stages in our lives. And indeed, how we can discover for ourselves what's new to us. This is what I'm calling a prospective canon, which has become possible thanks to the vast libraries of film now available to us. Checking out the prescriptive canon is also certainly much more possible than ever before. But it's surely missing out on the opportunities that now exist to explore and discover, and indeed to enter into dialogue with films, thanks to the technologies that we all have at our disposal. We can even make little personal films or video essays about them. But that's another subject, perhaps for a future lecture. For now, let me wish you happy browsing and encourage you to go beyond the algorithm. But at this particular moment in the history of film, with cinemas closed for a year in many parts of the world, we also need to think about whether that institution is likely to survive the pandemic and its aftermath. 
I began by recalling how the 19th century looked forward to a world of audiovisual spectacle, very similar to what we actually have today. Does this mean that, with streaming, the era of going out to the cinema has ended, except perhaps as a, a retro experience for a minority? Well, of course, it may have been heading that way already before the pandemic, except perhaps for one segment of the population, at least in America. Figures from there show that despite a continuing overall decline in cinema attendance, the 25 to 39 age group still constitutes over 10% of the total. And the older segments collectively represent 25 million, compared with just 13 million for the under 24s. So if any age group is going to keep cinemas going, it'll be the over 30s and maybe even the over 50s. And what kinds of cinema do they want? Well, two directions have been explored in recent cinema developments here in Britain. One is towards a, a club-like decor modelled on private viewing theatres, often with tables for drinks and snacks and even meals. Examples would be the, the Everyman group of cinemas, and there's a vintage survivor in London, the Electric, on Portobello Road. Another trend is towards even smaller, unadorned auditoria, like the extra screens at places such as Bristol's Watershed, or the Bertha Dockhouse screen at the Curzon Bloomsbury in London, which shows only documentaries, or Deptford's community-run cinema, or my local, here in North London, the Art House in Crouch End. I find it significant that Lego offered a palace cinema model, clearly based on some kind of ideal old-fashioned cinema, but I learn this is now a retired model, and therefore one for collectors only. However, one location in England, the Hyde Park Cinema in Leeds, first opened in 1914, does represent a link between latter-day conversion and the very first wave of cinema theatre buildings. We might wonder if there's any appetite today for further innovation in the cinema experience or in new ways of experiencing film. Science fiction cinema has long tried to offer visions of how viewing might be in the future, ever since the early days of the criminal masterminds Fontomas and Mabuza, both portrayed as making use of new technologies to further their dastardly ambitions. Here's an eerie moment from Fritz Lang's 1933 film The Testament of Dr. Mabuza, which to our eyes might seem like an anticipation of holographic imagery, another scheme that has been mooted for the future. Des Die Seele der Menschen muss in ihren tiefsten Tiefen verängstigt werden durch unerforschliche und scheinbar sinnlose Verbrechen. Verbrechen, die niemandem Nutzen bringen, die nur den einen Sinn haben, Angst und Schrecken zu verbreiten. Denn der letzte Sinn des Verbrechens ist...
70 years after Fritz Lang's Testament of Dr. Mabuza, in 2002, Steven Spielberg took up a similar challenge in his Minority Report, based on a story by Philip K. Dick, perhaps best known as the author of another futuristic classic, Blade Runner. In 2054, a date that seems a lot closer now, crime has largely been eliminated by precognition, which allows a gifted minority to see into the future and prevent it happening. And here is Tom Cruise operating this intriguing combination of the psychic and the technical, using only hand movements. So we've got a third party wearing sunglasses just out the window. You're not gonna kill me. Goodbye, crow. Goodbye, Chris. Wait! Wait. Wait. You say something, Chief? Aside from attempts to eliminate the screen, the physical screen, and its framing from an imagined future cinema, we've also seen a revival of stereoscopy, of 3D, perhaps most impressively realised in Cuaron's film Gravity, especially when seen in an IMAX theatre. But that enthusiasm subsided after about 10 years, in the face of consumer apathy, which I would argue was caused also by a creative deficit amongst filmmakers. Meanwhile, what about perfecting the small black box of the theatre? The Samsung Onyx proposes to link digital technology with the traditional mini-cinema format to create what are claimed to be ideal viewing and listening conditions. Whether or not this and similar formats might catch on remains to be seen. But of course, many of us already have relatively low-tech versions of this here in our homes. The wide availability of portable video projectors has allowed film to escape the theatre into any space that we might choose, indoors or outdoors, in a development which echoes what happened after World War II when plentiful 16mm projectors made possible a dramatic expansion of the film society movement and the introduction of film study in schools and colleges. Portable video projection may not seem like a, a watershed in screen media history, but perhaps it's been a quiet revolution and one that we may see in wider operation in the coming months. I set myself the challenge in this last of my lectures of posing the question, will streaming change the canons of cinema? Which is, of course, impossible to answer, as we're still living through the current real-world experiment in which cinemas are closed everywhere and streaming reigns supreme as a new mode of distribution and consumption. But whether we're nudged by unseen algorithms or encouraged to discover by curated offerings, I think it's hard to believe that the audiovisual world and its canons of excellence will just return to some kind of pre-pandemic normal. Who knows if festivals will resume their crowded marketplaces, where word of mouth can launch a new discovery, or whether fans will queue to be first to see the new James Bond or the new Christopher Nolan movie on a large screen. Or whether your and my local art house or community cinema will be able to reopen 
and whether we'll feel the impulse to support it. I'm tempted to invite viewers of this lecture to write in to Gresham College about your experiences of lockdown viewing, what you've enjoyed or discovered, and whether you long to return to the communal cinema experience. Do drop me a line if you're inclined. It might not be a rigorous study, but it might offer some useful pointers for the future of film. Meanwhile, the age of streaming has raised interesting questions about how we view, especially concerning the importance of screen size. Does it matter that we might view a film on anything from a, a wall-sized projection down to a mobile phone screen? The French scholar Roger Audin has observed that when you say you've read a novel, no one usually asks whether it was a paperback edition or a full-sized hardback, to which we may now add, of course, an electronic reader as a new option. But does the means of delivery matter for the aesthetic experience? In the case of film, the issue has been confused by often failing to differentiate between a full-size projection and this taking place in a cinema with others present. Roland Barthes also mentioned as an aside in his essay how much he abhorred the private screening, presumably on the grounds of it being a rather precious experience with the expectation of being asked to voice an opinion. But let's recast the issue more objectively. Does screen size and image quality matter? And does the physical context matter? A room devoid of distraction, as in a typical modern cinema, versus the domestic clutter that might surround a home screen. There has been some research by experimental psychologists and vision scientists on how these factors might affect our response. But we have to remember that this is a constantly evolving situation, which does point to a correlation between screen size and distance with levels of immersion or presence. But equally, someone who works in a streaming company admitted to me recently that he might well watch a short film, or part of a longer one, on a phone, since, after all, phone screens have reached a very high standard of definition and contrast compared with how they were a few years ago. And television screens notoriously differ enormously in their size, their quality, and in how they're adjusted by individuals. And there's the matter of ambient light. Do you have all the room lights off or not? Many, many variables are involved, which I think should prevent us from taking up a simple fixed position. Cinema viewing is always best. The fact of the matter, surely, is that we live in a multi-platform screen world, and most of us have become familiar with using two, or potentially more, kinds of screen. We may well have experienced the same work on more than one scale. In my own experience, this doesn't mean that one viewing is necessarily better than another. Indeed, the differences may be instructive. I can recall first seeing Lars von Trier's Antichrist at the Cannes Festival in 2009, when it shocked and terrified, I think, the entire audience in the gigantic Salle Lumière at a morning screening. I next saw it on a laptop, wearing headphones, as preparation for writing about it for a DVD release. Not as terrifying as the first encounter, certainly, but allowing me to see more and to reflect on the film's disturbing imagery and themes. Also allowing me to pause and to watch passages again, to become what my friend Laura Mulvey has called a pensive spectator. Russia, 
It does seem clear that when we're watching a film on a personal device, we're effectively in control, able to stop, start and repeat, very much as we would when reading a written text, and indeed making it possible for me to quote a film to you in a lecture like this. Roger Audin has written about the advantages that this kind of viewing can have over being in a cinema, where there may be unwanted distractions, a point that Roland Barthes also made in his essay. The issues at stake here in thinking about how multi-platform viewing may affect film canons are far-reaching. At one extreme, might the hallowed classics of the early canon now be subject to more critical scrutiny than when they were voted for by those who had only seen them once and a long time ago? Or, conversely, might films once dismissed emerge in a new light, especially when seen in digitally restored new editions? Surely it must be significant that everyone who voted Hitchcock's Vertigo, the greatest film of all time, in Sight and Sound's last poll in 2012, must have seen it most recently in a restored version. And indeed, the 1996 restoration, with some added sound effects and extensive work on the image, proved almost as controversial as the vivid restoration of Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel in Rome. In a very real sense, it could be argued that the vertigo we have today is a very different artefact from the one that appeared in 1958 and was met with decidedly mixed responses. Well? I should be back from your face and pinned at the neck. I told her that. I told you that. We tried it. It just didn't seem to suit me.
None of this should be surprising to scholars and critics concerned with other art forms, whether literary or pictorial. The processes of editing, cleaning and restoring have long been recognised as essential to maintaining canonic works in a modern condition, to bringing them up to modern expectations. And they've often proved controversial when they're felt to interfere too much with the historic fabric of the work. Is film any different? Perhaps not, although a streamed version of Citizen Kane or Vertigo is very far removed in almost all material and experiential respects from the celluloid originals projected on a screen in a smoky cinema. There is one further aspect of what I might call the modern canon of film, which has benefited from cinema entering the digital world. This is the category traditionally known as short films, meaning anything other than the long-established feature of around 90 minutes or longer. The very term short implies something lesser compared with the feature film standard. And cinema canons have always been based on features, apart from some disruptive proposals in the 1970s, which you might remember from my last lecture. This has ensured that filmmakers who only worked in shorter formats have routinely been ignored, and that films which clearly aspire to being equivalent to poems or sketches rather than to novels and large paintings have failed to achieve canonic status. But what the digital era has allowed is a more equitable distribution and access for such works. One of today's major platforms, Mubi, has started to acknowledge this by including short films in its repertoire, like the current LA Rebellion shorts and a work by British artist filmmaker John Smith, Citadel, which addresses the early stages of our COVID lockdown. Buy and sell. Buy and sell. Business. Buy and sell. Business. Business. Buy and sell. Business. Business. Our business. Business. Our business as usual. But at this stage, I want to stress that for the vast majority of the people of this country, uh, we should be going about our business as usual. I was at a hospital the other night where I think there were, a few, there were actually a few coronavirus uh, patients and I shook hands with everybody, uh, you'll be pleased to know, and, and I continue to shake hands and uh, go about business as usual. Business as usual. Our business as usual. Go about business as usual. If streaming and sharing films digitally makes works like these more widely available, indeed perhaps even favours them over lengthy features, might we see an erosion of the feature film canon? Personally, I would like to hope for this. Many of the most innovative filmmakers in the history of cinema have long been denied the status they deserve. And I'd like to end this lecture with an extract from one such, Len Lai's Rainbow Dance an animated short made as an advertisement for the Post Office Savings Bank back in 1936. One of my own 
proudest achievements was getting this included as an exhibit in the Victoria and Albert Museum's Great Modernism Exhibition in 2008, allowing it to take its rightful place among many of the icons of modernist art and design in other media. Small for the post savings bank. 